Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Hello, base campers. Hope you're all doing well. Today's episode has a few memes and then a base camp classic. I've got a few good interviews coming up after this week, and we'll start a run of the traditional format, which is my monologue and then the interview and then the outro. I stitched this one together for you. I thought it was better to do it this way rather than just do a shorty. Enjoy. Red pills for an emerging world. Man, what a time to be alive. Are you starting to get a sense of the dynamics that are at play, this clash of ideas and narratives between the globalists in one corner with their totalitarian communist agenda? You know the menu by now. Central bank digital currencies, mandatory quote-unquote vaccines ad nauseum, social credit scores for your carbon footprint, and more and more restrictions on your freedom. Put forth by self-appointed so-called authorities, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and other so-called experts. God, it's exhausting just describing these anti-humanists. Oh, and just remember, they have zero authority. None. And then you have humanity in the other corner, full of promise, fellowship, shared vision, even though we have differing opinions, and Bitcoin, the people's money. And we have a front row seat for this, and many of us are throwing our hearts and souls on the side of humanity. Who else are you going to fight for, right? Hollywood, the corrupt status quo, the sociopaths who long to tighten their control over we the people? I don't think so. Here's Georgia Maloney, the fierce new pro-humanist prime minister of Italy. This is what she has to say. She says, quote, everything that defines us is now an enemy for those who would like us to no longer have an identity. And so they attack national identity. They attack religious identity. They attack gender identity. They attack family identity. She says, I can no longer define myself as an Italian, Christian, woman, mother. No, I must be citizen X, gender X, parent one, parent two. I must be a number because when I'm only a number, then I no longer have an an identity or roots. Then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of globalist financial speculators. Then she goes on to say, that's the reason why we inspire so much fear because we do not want to be a number or a QR code for that matter. We will defend the value of the human being, of every single human being, unquote. That's the fighting spirit. God, I love that woman. All right, base campers, it's meme time. I like to bust out a few memes on the show from time to time. They're like little red truth bombs or bite-sized pieces of information for your consideration. Here we go. The first one's from Joe Blow on Twitter who says, quote, there's a growing portion of the population that will never, ever again believe a goddamn thing they hear from mainstream media, government, or health officials. We just need that number to reach a tipping point, unquote. Aho, and I believe we're getting there, Joe. And one from Michael Knowles, who says, quote, the left controls every major institution in America, mainstream media, the educational academies, administrative government, Hollywood, big tech, well, except for Twitter now, etc. So if, quote, unquote, institutional racism really does exist, whose fault would that be, unquote? Good question, Michael. And one from Joel Rafiti, another freedom lover. He says, quote, I don't care if you worship Jesus, Jehovah, Krishna, or Muhammad. I don't care if you believe you're a starseed, a light worker, or an intergalactic traveler. Just don't tell me what to do, unquote. And one from the Q drops. Oh, my God, Tony's dropping cues. Oh, 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 hide. God damn, I have fun with some of this shit. 
This is from Q Drop number 1690, and it simply says, quote, you are witnessing watching the systematic destruction of the old guard, unquote. Look at that, base campers. You just survived a Q Drop without imploding. Good on you. And one from Ultra Patriots in Progress. I love this guy, man. He connects Bitcoin with Q. He's not the first. And he says, quote, Bitcoin is no different than the Q operation. It is simply information that one can research to undeniably prove is true. Bitcoin is much easier as it is fundamentally math and cannot be misinterpreted. Arguing with a Bitcoiner when one has not gone down the rabbit hole is like arguing with an Anon that human trafficking and corruption doesn't exist. You simply lose every time. Bitcoin doesn't care about emotions or opinions. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. You have to do the work and learn, unquote. And lastly, base campers, remember, normal, healthy adults do not get angry that they can't talk to five to nine-year-olds about sex. They just don't. But predators and perverts with an agenda do. Just saying, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. All right, I was clicking around looking for a base camp classic, and I wanted to do an early episode, and I love the two I did with Dr. Bob Bear. This one is all the way back to the tail end of season number one. It's episode number 32, The Heart of Addiction with Dr. Bob Bear. Enjoy. Addiction is a life experience that touches us all. More than 21 million Americans have at least one addiction, and of those 21 million, only 10% receive any sort of treatment. Addiction is something that nearly every family knows. In a typical family, you don't have to look very far to find someone that has an addiction or an addictive compulsive personality. And I am certainly one of these people. My compulsive tendencies have provided me with a lifetime of learning and not always the fun kind of learning. How do I live a healthy, creative life without spinning out of control? I have never been someone who likes a little of something. I like a lot. And this is something every addict can relate to. It's a strange combination of wanting ecstasy and bliss and wanting to numb myself from emotional pain. If I'm honest, the part of me that is connected to my addiction is a young part of myself, a part that needs soothing and is confused about how to do that. It's a part that needs shelter from stress, anxiety, boredom, and loneliness. Without adequate resources, this young part of myself would prefer to reach for any soothing substance, alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, or something like porn. Anything that will ease the sense of feeling raw and exposed. That is the best way I can describe it to you. And I know there are many of you out there that are struggling to figure this one out. I got sober nearly seven years ago and it vastly improved my life. However, I will always carry and do my best to love this delicate part of myself that so desperately needs tender love and care. The challenge for all of us is to find healthier ways to self-soothe and to forgive and love ourselves and others as we all learn the power of unconditional love. My guest today is author Dr. Bob Baer. Bob has been a leader in the mental health and addiction field for over 20 years. He holds advanced degrees in music, theater, clinical psychology, and organizational psychology. He is the senior clinical consultant and former clinical director of the Last Resort Treatment Center for Men, and he's also the founder of the Braveheart Experience, which offers healing workshops for men in recovery. Here is my interview with Dr. Bob Baer. I am here with Dr. Bob Bear. Bob, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you back on the show. Hey, Tony. It's good to talk to you. I remember when it was you'd just gotten this thing started, man. Now you're the now you're the podcast king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish. Yeah, yeah. We're you you were the guest on episode three. We were doing Men and Their Mission, and that was really well received by listeners. And I wanted to do a listener, a couple listeners wrote into me with some topics they wanted to see us address on Basecamp. And one of them 
actually both listeners that wrote in to rec- recommend subjects wanted to hear about addiction as a topic. And um, so I thought of you because you run recovery centers and you've done training and you're a trained psychotherapist. So I thought this would make for an interesting topic. I guess my first question to you is how did you come to have treating addiction be part of your life purpose or your life mission? Just thinking when you when you open that up, it's like, yeah, that's the good news and the bad news. I know a lot about addiction. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very useful uh, information bank. And uh, I've come by most of it by virtue of uh, having maybe the most complex, misunderstood disease of everything that's in the that's in the um, the world of psychology and treatment and healing. I mean, there's a lot of folks that proclaim that they know how to treat it, including myself. Uh, but it is a mystery. And uh, yeah, I found my way in uh, maybe just a few years before you and I met. I had a child that died in '87. I don't know if you and I have talked much about that, but was that that was the moment that cracked me open after 35 years of uh, just riding on, pull up your bootstraps, uh, succeed, win, um, you know, figure it out. <laughs> and the other long list of, uh, useless, uh, frameworks. <clears throat> um, but, uh, you know, I cracked open for about a month and then I just slammed shut again and just started using drugs, alcohol, uh, and all of the process addictions. That's another advantage and horror that I have is that I know a lot about a lot of addictions, <laughs> but I, I, I just didn't keep it to one, uh, to, to, uh, to one street. I went down all the street. You spread it out. Had, you, yeah. you looked in yeah. every neighborhood, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm a researcher, man. I did a lot of research. <laughs> and, um, the real one that took me down to suicidal uh, I had a plan, a very specific plan and was almost there was love addiction. That's the one that, that's the drug that uh, took me down the furthest. And I actually was able to squeeze out the words, I need help. And, uh, you know, that was right in those days when the men's movement was getting started, lots of 12 step support. So that's kind of how I got started. Yeah, that's, I, what you mentioned, like it's really misunderstood. Like, what what is something that people might not really know about addiction that people overlook or they tend to not really understand well about about that path? Yeah. Well, one one thing. Let's start out with something controversial. Like everybody has it. How about that one? <laughs> Shall I just throw that one out there like a big bomb in the middle of the room? Uh, we are an addicted, dependent species. We uh, are, at some level, most of us are leaning on something. So that's that's just one thing that I'll throw out there, and we may get back to that. But I think the other, probably the biggest uh, misconception in, in popular culture, anybody that's been around the recovery world, even a little bit, kind of has a sense of this, but it's not a moral problem. It's not, it's not a bad person that just can't pull up his bootstraps sufficiently. Once you go over the line of becoming an addict, there is no coming back. And, uh, you know, for me, I cannot not drink and use and act out. I do not have the ability to do it. And I think anybody that really hasn't looked at their own dependencies and uh, powerlessness 
over them, it's really hard to see someone doing a bunch of crazy shit <laughs> and, and not being able to stop. I mean, when there's consequences, you're walking down the street and you keep breaking your leg in the same hole, uh, you know, take a different street. The addict does not have the ability to do that. And it's not because he's a morally bad person. I think that's probably the biggest, and that'll, that kind of, that kind of leans into the conversation about shame and how that, uh, how that works with a disease. But that's right. I mean, uh, it's, it's interesting that you said that because when I, when I sit, I'm, I'm also an, an addict. I, I drank like a fish and smoked tons of cigarettes, did drugs, tried all kinds of stuff. And I tend to do a lot of stuff when I do it. And when I'm really sitting with what is it that is going on and what I kind of touch on is this kind of small, needy part of myself that's young and is being really overwhelmed by life. I'm really overwhelmed with anxiety. I'm overwhelmed with shame and feelings of unworthiness. And even something like boredom can have me run to a substance to self-soothe. And it's really, if, I, if I'm honest, it was my lack of training in how to self-soothe um, uncomfortable feelings, dense affect that I didn't know how to manage as a young person. And so I found booze and cigarettes. I'm like, oh, here's a, here's a method to, to soothe myself. But ultimately it was really unhealthy. And then it led to a lot of other sorts of addictions as well. So. Yeah. The, uh, uh, you've seen the, I've seen it in several places recently. The, uh, the phrase trauma is the true gateway drug. <laughs> And it's one way to look at with those uncomfortable feelings that you're referring to are trauma. And we all have it. That's another thing, uh, a myth that I'd like to destroy is the fact that there's this little, little pocket of folks that have abuse and some kind of PTSD that are the people with trauma. Well, I'd like to expand that <clears throat> idea because most of us had some sort of abandonment if we're from any kind of a dysfunctional family at all. And you know, I've been doing this for about 30 years now, and I have, I'm still looking for that family that doesn't have some dysfunction. <laughs> I, want to, I want to meet these people. Uh, you know, and what happens when we're between zero and nine years old? We are sponges for everything that happens. And if there's discomfort in the room, a kid will pick it up. A kid, it goes in the body. Anybody that's got a kid that uh, starts swearing in the back seat and you can't believe that he... How did he, where did he hear that? <laughs> everything, everything a kid hears and feels goes in their body and it stays. <clears throat> and if there isn't um, a lot of attention put on uh, the space to heal, then it stays in the body and, it's, uh, and, it, and it remains there as discomfort. And yes, of course, we're going to try to find a way to not be uncomfortable. We, as a species, and especially in Western culture, we are... Uh, Pleasure-seeking rocket. <laughs> how can I not? How can I not feel anything? That's unconsciously. A lot of us are up to that, and I was up to that for thirty-five years until the rocket crashed. Um, you know, and that's you know that's how the transformation begins. Uh, you know, there's got to be. I think you wrote something. Didn't I hear you writing or something about aversion therapy? Didn't I see that in one of one of your blogs or something? Well, I was going to ask you about that a little bit later in the conversation about whether that works or not, as, as we're well, talking about It's kind of a joke to me because the, here's the aversion. Legal problems, uh, jail, um, psychiatric institutions, families breaking apart. These are, It's very aversive. And the world will 
will uh, create those things when I'm uh, in my dependencies and it, and it moves to the degree of addiction because it changes my personality. Anybody that has watched a person progress from a person close in your life to a full-blown addict, you've watched the person absolutely disappear and become what appears to be a different person. Yeah. What, Bob, what do you, what, what do you, let's say you have a family member that a loved one and you're sensing them going, you know, they're, they're starting to show the signs of addiction. You know, maybe you're just starting to see the first, like, oh, oh this is, looks, uh-oh. Um, what's, you know, what, what's a proper way to address that? Let's say it's your brother. Let's say it's your son. Uh, how do you go about opening up a conversation that could help them not go down the path that you and I went down necessarily? So, yeah. Well, I didn't, one of the things I didn't have around me was anybody in recovery. I, did, I really didn't have anybody that had been initiated into the world of self-reflection. So it didn't occur to me <laughs> to, to, to look within. You know, so that, that's what I tell families a lot. The best thing you can do for this guy that you're worried about is to get to a meeting yourself. And then when this this addict or this potential addict is, uh, uh, you know, wondering, hey, where are you going, mom? And mom says, well, I'm going to my meeting. So, well, wait a minute. No, you have to take me here and give me money for, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. No, I'm taking care of myself. I'm going to a meeting. So that's that's the first thing. Take care of yourself and have the, this person that you're worried about, uh, uh, in other words, model for them what you want to see. Most kids, most Humans learn by watching. <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of different learning styles, but that's a big one. I don't know about you, but I did just about the opposite of everything my folks told me to do. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd, I'd have been in the military. My dad said, shit, oh, man. And I do regret not having uh, given myself that uh, opportunity for some discipline in my life. But, um, yeah, so that's one thing, modeling. Yeah. Was there something else you want to say about that? Or yeah, yeah, there is because my daughter goes to a super school uh, mm -hmm. here here in Austin. It's all girls' school, which she complains about because of the uniforms and all that. But it has been spectacular. They do things. They have a entire year where they talk about sex and drugs all year long, and they send the kids home with assignments to sit the parents down and talk about this stuff with with prompts. And it's not a uh, drugs are bad program. It's a, here's what this drug does to you. Here's the effect you'll get. You'll get really high and you'll have uh, consequences and you'll detox and you will, there will be a long period where you'll feel horrific. In other words, they're getting the information so that it's not this mystery that they have to go and research themselves. I think that is giant. That is giant. So, I mean, yeah, I, I've got a young person in my house and I'm like, and he's kind of a, He's not a data guy, but he likes the information. And I, I think that telling him, this is what this does, this is what that does to your body and to your brain development, whatever, he will take that and integrate it and then make smarter choices. Not that he's making bad choices now, but I think that's a great approach for him and probably a lot of young people that are like, you know, it takes the mystery out of it. Like, oh, I'm going to get high and then, and then this happens afterwards. Okay, I know what the trade-off is. You know, I'm in this world, so you'd think it'd be easier for me, but it's hard to talk about that stuff with your kids. And I was very grateful that that school took leadership 
around that. It's a, because, you know, even though for guys like you and me that do all this deep kind of bioenergetic psychodrama transformation work, it might seem a little too simple just that the education would make that much different, but the difference, but there's lots of research about that. The bystander syndrome, you know, people can be, everybody can be standing around watching somebody be bullied. And they've done a lot of research. And the, what we all think is that the other guy will intervene. <laughs> and so nobody does anything. And what they found is that the biggest factor that changes it is just a little bit of education, letting people know, hey, you know, you could step in. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, you know, drugs will really, you know, you'll, you'll get high. Yeah. And there will be major consequences. It's not a bad uh, piece of education. So modeling, uh, education, and, uh, you know, just being the ability to have a, a forum where there's honesty, you know, the biggest thing in 12 step recovery that they say over and over is anybody can recover if they have the ability to be honest. That's kind of what it takes. That's right. I, I remember reading, I don't remember where I read it, uh, but it, I remember reading that it was a theory that the root addiction to all alcoholism and drug addiction was a sugar addiction, that really addicts always, almost always latched onto a sugar addiction at a young age. And maybe because I, I, that was true for me, I started to look at it like, is that really the truth? Or is that just, is he hitting my pattern? and or is it just sugars, just like anything else, like all the things we mentioned? And who really cares if it was the first one? Uh, the person's going to, if it's not sugar at 10, then it's going to be pot or cigarettes or whatever at 20. Who cares where you start if you're an addict, which you said like nearly everybody is, you're going to get going at some point, right? Well, well, yeah, well, think about it. It's the first thing you, it's the first drug you can get at, <laughs> right? You know? It's like, and I, I, I'm in 12-step recovery for a food addiction. It's absolutely, a lot of folks in that, I'm not sure it's true for me, but a lot of folks in that in those programs say I've always been a food addict. Um, it's possible. I'm not sure about that for myself. Uh, but it, that is a doorway to the conversation about the many ways that we medicate, right? And there's particular, that's another misconception that it's drugs and alcohol. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, uh, addiction, but there are the process addictions uh, adjust the chemist, our chemistry, and many of them in exactly the same way that drugs do. And by the way, just as a, as a big, by the way, there's, we don't get high from drugs. That's another misconception. We get high by the adjustment of our own chem. We're high on our own chemistry. All we're doing is jacking up our own chemistry. <clears throat> so the, the, only re the only reason that's relevant is because if you want to get high, there's ways to do it. <laughs> there's ways to get high on our own chemistry. We don't need that. And what the, what the, um, the counterfeit chemistry that we put in our body uh, keeps us from being able to access that natural joy and flow that we're all in that Pete also known as kind of the spirituality. It's like the spirits, right? We want to drink spirits because we want that feeling I Hate to use such a controversial word as God, but <laughs> we all want to feel that God thing, right? Whatever that thing is that's being connected to all things. Uh, and there are so many ways to adjust our chemistry. Now, uh, you know, the process addictions are a tricky tricky uh 
sticky bag of wax or ball of wax or whatever you want to call it. Because what are process addictions? Just to be clear, I'm not really clear what a yeah. I suppose I should define the stuff that I threw out there. All right, so. The process addictions are the ones that do not involve the injection or inhalation uh, or are drinking something, right? It's a, it, usually it's a behavior, and they, uh, I don't know if I can list them, but I'll try. Food, gambling, sex, love, uh, tech is a big one. That's a whole podcast right there. Uh, but money, shopping, I mean, there's a, a work, another one. Uh, being a podcast addict, I don't know if you can be a podcast addict. Maybe um, I'm getting but, there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so here's the trickiest ones, though, and the twelve-step programs that are the most rigid uh, by virtue of the trickiness is uh, our uh, food, uh, love, and again, uh, anything to do with money. And and you can guess why that is. We. Because we, <laughs> I sit down with my drug three times a day, right? And, uh, you know, the gambler walks in the 7-Eleven and it's, there's his bet right there in front of him. And, and, you know, anybody that's a human being and has the capacity for love, I mean, you're seeing images everywhere. And we're all kind of looking for that look in the eyes or the, uh, or the image, you know, sex and love go together. But those those programs have very uh, kind of strict programs because you have to have, uh, unlike uh, alcohol, where you can put the plug in the jug, with the process addictions, there's no jug, there's no plug. Uh, so we have to have a really uh, specific plan and, uh, you know, have some, what I call jokingly, adult supervision. To have a ch- to have a chance to transcend that. I mean, if you if you include the the process addictions along with drugs and alcohol, cigarettes, and all that, you are really talking about everybody. I think you know, there's nobody that's not going to have something that they reach for to soothe and just you know compulsively do something over and over again and wonder you know why am I why do I keep doing this? I don't know, but I don't want to stop. That's all I know. Don't look at it. That's that's why we've got to get the stigma off it, the label of bad, the uh, the uh, shame, you know, because it's uh, we're all uh, unconsciously, and that that's <laughs> here's the trickiest thing about the disease. It tells us we don't have it. That is the primary symptom. It tells me that I don't have it because the disease, and you and I know about the shadow. It's part of that whole shadow uh, conglomeration that thinks that it's helping. There was a time when we were hurting so much that that shot of alcohol or that, uh, you know, finding somebody to finally love us, to try to start filling that giant hole that we have in our soul, that it worked for a while, but it doesn't work uh, forever. And, you know, that's the thing. People uh, in our culture saying, I need help is just not, doesn't come rolling off the tongue. <laughs> well, and often it's it's ironic because often addicts, in a family, there's often a family constellation. Let's let's just use alcohol as a as an easy example. You know, you could have a lot of really heavy alcohol use in a family, and then the one that kind of maybe goes off the rails even the most and ends up in treatment. It's almost like that person is seen as the black sheep of the family for betraying the. You know, like how dare you expose? You know, what's actually occurring underneath in your inner life 
And there's just all this shame that you have to work through. I had a question from a, a new warrior brother who said, hey, can you ask one of these guys this question on your podcast? So um, and you're, you're the right person. So he asked me, he said, how come he's well in his 50s? And he said, it seems like there should be a second initiation into being an elder. He said, because I feel like I'm, I'm 58 and I'm still carrying way too much warrior. And I feel like I can do work in king and work in lover to, and, and soften that. He goes, but I just feel like it would be better if there was some sort of you know, day or a weekend where you really felt like you were brought over into the elder community with all that entails with its king energy and all of its blessing and, and all that. And, and I kind of agreed with them. I kind of said, you know, that does seem like there would be a space for that. But I wanted to ask you about it if, if it had come up with you and your conversations or if it was ever put out there and tried or if, you know, uh, you just do leadership trainings or, you know, how, how do you bring somebody along maybe that's ready for a, another jolt of information via initiation and he's sitting, you know, he's well in his fifties and feels like, Hey, I should, I, I should have access to some of the elder stuff that, that I hear about. And I'm just not able to, to get there. Well, I don't know how much wisdom I have about that. I have my own resistance to being an elder and I'm certainly of the age. Uh, but I find myself seeing the beauty and younger men and even becoming tear, more tearful about how, 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 how much I want them to see their own beauty, also known as blessing, right? That's one of the big, that's uh, the biggest skill of the elder, of the king, is the ability to see the beauty in somebody in a way that you can reflect it so that they can transcend their shame. That's essentially what our job is as elders. Now, it's just like 12-step recovery. You start trying to do that without any sense of your own love of self or your own sense of stability within your own psyche. It's not going to be very effective. So, you know, I think life, in my, in my dad's last few years, my little nephew came into his life and he cracked open, this old tough guy, and he was a blessing elder king. <laughs> so you, we could have an initiation for it, Tony, or... You know, life will hand it to us somewhere or another. Somewhere or another will crack open that uh, ability to bless and to be generative. That's beautiful. Now that you told that story, my father-in-law, he just in the last two or three months lost his wife of 57 years. And he was similar, really tough construction worker, never saw him cry, never saw him really take in, you know, the younger generations in a way. And he has transformed. I mean, he has broken open. And just even looking at you, sometimes he'll start crying. He wants to tell you how much he loves you and what a blessing you've been to him. And, you know, it's, it's pretty shocking. It's like, you know, it really, his initiation was in the loss of his longtime wife, you know. And, and whoever asked that question, it's a wise question, too, because we live in this world where there aren't a lot of uh, formal doorways to to really express that well. At the Braveheart experience, we always have three or four guys who are identified as the elders, and I give them permission to just love on those guys and to let them know that they're loved. And a lot of the guys that come through Braveheart are young, uh, you know, they've just been, they, most of, a lot of their teenage years was in the addiction. They have not, uh, nobody's ever been there when, when they were conscious enough to receive the love. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's great. So, so, you know, 
the, yeah, the theme of this thing that we just did is about uh, like setting the addiction and dependencies aside. But then the next step is to really deal with the trauma. And then the punchline is we get to live our creative lives because all of us, all of us artist types, everybody's an art. We just all forgot how to do it. But, you know, there's some work we got to do to get down there to really access it. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on. It's always such a pleasure to to talk to you and to get your insights and wisdom. It's always fresh. Um, I so appreciate the work you do at the treatment centers and all of the trainings you've led. And you've really served well. And I just appreciate uh, your time today and your and your wisdom. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to hang out with you again, Tony. Thanks. And lastly, Bob, is there any creative projects that you have coming up that you'd like to mention? Thanks, Tony. Just because I'm having so much fun with this book that I'm writing right now, uh, and it's related to what we've been talking about, the title of the book, and it'll be out within six months, I think, is Stop Doing Shit You Don't Want to (laughs) Do. The subtitle is How Unresolved Trauma Runs Our Life. That's great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Bob as much as I did. One of the important takeaways for me was how we all experience addiction in one form or another, and that it is a deeply mysterious condition. That insight alone will bring more compassion as we learn how to be gentler with ourselves and with others as we make our way along this path together that is so rich with learning and opportunities to live with more heart. To find out more information on Bob or any of his excellent recovery programs, go to www.creativelifeinstitute.com. And Bob's excellent book, The Creative Fire, which is all about healing and creativity, is available on Amazon. That's our show for today. Man, remember that the story of your life is not yet all told. I'm Tony Rezac, and thank you for listening to Basecamp for Men.